Welcome to my favorite detective stories, podcast number 157. Today's date is April 19th, 2022, and I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Our guest this week is Michael Craven. Michael is a freelance advertising writer and creative director. He has worked on some of the country's most creative agencies on both national and global accounts, such as BMW and BMW Global, as well as Microsoft, Burger King, Coke Zero, and more. Michael is the author of three crime novels, all published by HarperCollins, The Detective and the Chinese High Fin, 2016, The Detective and the Pipe Girl, 2014, and Body Copy, 2009. He's been nominated for the Nero Wolf Award, honoring excellence in mystery fiction, and has twice been nominated for the Seamus Award for Best P.I. Novel of the Year. The Detective and the Pipe Girl was at one point the number one selling private eye novel on Amazon, besting more than... 15,000 titles. This was a fun interview, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it. Welcome to my favorite detective stories. I'm your host, John A. Hoda. Come sit by my campfire as we listen to crime fiction writers talking about their flawed fictional detectives. I will alternate weekly between award-winning and best-selling authors with debut authors who have overcome all the obstacles to get their first novel out into the world. This episode is brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, six-book series, and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong, small-town cozy mystery series. To learn more, go to www.johnhoda.com, that's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com, and join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marsha O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free. Hi, Michael. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Say, uh, how's the weather down there in the Big Apple today? Cold. Sunny, but cold. Yeah, kind of expected for uh, mid-January. As we record this, it's a Thursday, January 27th, 2022. And the days are getting a little longer, and that's one thing to be happy for. But anyway, up here in Milford, up the train tracks from you guys, uh, it's the same thing. Uh, I'm in a polar vortex up here as well. Yes. But, I'm, but I'm also recording from the luxury of my passenger seat of my car outside of a Starbucks where I'm glamming Wi-Fi. That's very P.I. of you to be yes. sitting, sitting outside a Starbucks in a car <laughs> doing an interview. That's it. And trust me, since COVID, I've done a lot of interviews outside of Starbucks in my car. That's great. Or car to car where the person sits in their car and we talk cop to cop. And uh, I pass the uh, statement paper through the windows to them and they sign them and they pass them back. If you have to interrupt this podcast and tail somebody or get out of your car and get in a fight, (laughs) I will understand. Yeah. Oh, no, it's portable. I can carry it all with me. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's... uh, it's just that house construction going on today, and I would rather listen to trucks and, and traffic driving by on the post road than saber saws and hammers. So Yeah, I feel like I can hear one. I feel like I can hear a truck maybe driving by. It's, it's a nice atmosphere. Yeah. Okay. Well, hey, I'm PI talking from my car. That's right. So anyway, Michael, wanted to talk to you because you've been twice nominated for the Seamus Awards, and that's from the Private Eye Writers Association, of which I'm a member. You write. Uh, fictional detectives. I want to do a deep dive in that. But first, tell me about your career. Tell me how you got into writing. And this is about the most talking I do. So just tell me what your story is. 
Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate you reaching out. I've listened to your show a number of times, and I like it. I love it. I love a show that talks to writers about detectives and crime fiction. So it's nice to be here. Oh, great! Appreciate that. Well, my my writing career, I had sort of two beginnings of it, and the reason for that is because the entire time I've been writing books, crime fiction, detective fiction, I've also been doing a career as an advertising writer and creative director. So a lot of times when people want to write books, they also want to not do the thing that they're doing in their day job or their regular life. That's never been the case with me. I've always been pursuing sort of two writing careers at once. And so they're sort of connected. My first book, the first crime novel I wrote, I was pretty young. I was working at an ad agency and I wrote a book called Body Copy. Mm-hmm. And that story took place in the advertising business and the PI, a guy named Donald Tremaine, came into the world of advertising and investigated a murder. Okay. So I was living in LA and like most people in LA, I had also written a couple screenplays. And at the time I had a screenplay agent. Okay. So when I wrote my first novel, I sent it to my screenwriting agent. And she said, hey, I like this, but I don't, I don't read this kind of book, really, and I don't represent this kind of thing. I represent screenplays, but I will try to send it around for you to an agent or somebody who could help you. And so a lot of time went by. I had switched jobs maybe two times already, and a guy called me up and said, I like your book. I'll try to sell it for you. I didn't investigate it any further than that. I didn't try to ascertain what a literary agent was or really anything. I just said, great. And went back to my career as an ad writer. Then a couple of years went by and I rewrote the book a few times and sometimes drastically rewrote it uh, and, and was getting it in better and better shape. But I got a job at an ad agency where I really, really wanted to work. Uh, an agency where I had, that I had pursued for like a year. Okay. And I got, I got hired at this agency and right then the book sold. My agent called me up and said, hey, they're, they're going to buy your book. And I was at a crossroads because I, I had literally just gotten this job. Mm-hmm. And so I ended up saying, I've got to sort of do right by this agency. I've got to see if I can take my ad career to the next level. And I basically just focused on advertising and just, I didn't write a second book. I didn't think about writing a second book. I didn't continue the character. I just went back to work at my ad job. And I did that for five years and did a lot of good advertising, sort of took my advertising career to the next level made some work I was proud of, but it was only then five years later that I said, all right, I've got to write another book. So this time I took a very different approach and I resigned from my job at the ad agency and said, I'm going to spend a year doing nothing but writing this book. And so that's when I wrote, I started, I literally started over. I started with a new character. I went into it with a different state of mind and I wrote the detective and the pipe girl. Uh, one of the books that got the, the Seamus nomination. Mm-hmm. I took a long time to write it. I thought about it kind of intensely and wrote the book. And then when I went to sell it, I started over there as well. I sort of parted ways with my first agent, who was a great guy, but just wasn't a crime fiction guy. Right. You know, we can get into that later, how sort of important that is. But I started from scratch and I did the thing that. I think that everybody should do. And I looked, I sat at my computer and, you know, Googled how to get literary agent 
in New York City, you know, and I cold called agents and agencies and wrote query letters and just did the whole thing that we've all had to do that takes forever and got an agent that way. And it was extremely time consuming, but it was, it was very, very helpful because it gave me sort of context about what I was getting into, what it meant to get a literary agent, what it meant to write a query letter where you have to sort of describe your book quickly and all that stuff. And so this time around, I eventually got an agent, the book eventually sold, and the response to the book was much better. It got really good reviews right out of the gates and you know, eventually got the, the Seamus nomination. And so it was an interesting thing, I think, because I sort of started twice with almost the exact opposite approach. Hmm. And that's how I got going. Okay. Now, over those five years, had you had any regrets about not following up with a second book or, or were you mostly focused in your ad career at that point? I did have regrets. I did. And I, I felt bad because like most people who get into this game, I love reading and I love crime fiction. I love PI novels. But what it did was it allowed me to read a ton more. And even though I was working in advertising, I was still writing every day. I was still opening up a document on my computer and writing a script. And so I was getting better. And so while I did feel bad, and it was nagging at me. Like I was going, someday I got to get back to this. It helped me in a sense as well, because I grew up a little bit. I got to know myself a little bit better. I organized my thoughts a little bit more about what I wanted to do the next time out. So it was, it was both. It was sort of both sides of that coin. Mm. Now, you know, I don't want to go Zen on you with this, but I was thinking that the time was right in that it was the right time for you to do your second book and to switch characters and to come up with a fresh idea because, well, it was the right time. Those five years of sort of being in limbo until then was important for you to discern what you want to do and how you want to go about it. Is that fair? That's fair. And you can go Zen on me anytime, <laughs> period, in this podcast where we talk about favorite writers and stuff like that. Zen will come back up. Okay. Um, I, I agree with you. And I think that that's important. And, I, and it's part of the reason I told that story about how I did it both different times is because I really believe that the sort of effort I put into it the second time around, not just the effort writing the book, but the effort to figure out sort of the other side of the business and all of that stuff sort of contributed to the success that the book had later. Sure. I get it. So just briefly, help me with uh, Body Copy and Donald Tremaine. Tell me, uh, I know it's a, a one-off essentially, but still something that's out there in the universe, something that you'd like to talk about. Tell me about how you created that character and uh, what made that fictional detective tick. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because I, I'm still proud of the book and mm -hmm. you know, it sold and it was a great experience. And I had an idea because I worked in the advertising business and, you know, before Mad Men came out, before the show Mad Men came out, nobody really understood what happens in an ad agency. Like there's an old, there's an old joke that like even people who work in ad agency, our parents don't know what we do. <laughs> and so I thought, hey, I'm, I'm working in this industry that's pretty interesting. Everybody has a, a general idea, like you make commercials, but I thought this would be a good area to bring a detective into. And I was already in love with detective fiction and, and those, that sort of outsider character. So I started with a sort of setting. And then I thought it would be cool to bring somebody into this setting that was completely sort of the opposite of it. Mm. And that's, that was the beginning of Tremaine. I lived in LA. I was a surfer. I thought 
I'm going to create a character who's an ex-pro surfer who lives in a trailer park in Malibu, a trailer park that exists in real life, okay. who, who has a very, very different life than these people spending their days thinking about like how to make you know Ajax or Pampers famous. Mm-hmm. And I thought that would be a good sort of scenario to bring an outsider character into. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've been uh, out to uh, that neck of the woods a few times. My daughter lived in Santa Monica for 10 years. So uh, right down the, uh, the yeah, road sure. in Malibu and uh, into the canyons uh, for some nice restaurants too. But I, I get the uh, surfer dude yeah. analogy. And we also have somebody that's uh, not so quite a surfer, but somebody that spends a lot of time in the water in Michael Connolly's latest character, Renee Ballard. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I read, I read one of his books. Uh, yeah, it's true. Yeah, the Tremaine, you know, nowadays surfers are pretty famous and they can make some money and things like that. But there was a generation of professional surfers back in the day who might have even been a world champion who most people hadn't heard of and they weren't necessarily sort of rich and sort of riding out their post-tour years in some easy way. So I thought it's not that big of a stretch for a sort of adrenaline sort of type person to become a PI. Yeah. And so, of course, did he have any kind of law enforcement background or how did he come about being a, a Seamus? He did not. No. Okay. And, and, yeah. Yeah. He was a guy that was fearless in the waves and who was a thinker. And that's how he became a PI. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. And the obstacles that you threw in his way during the course of the book? In that book, the obstacle was getting his head around what the advertising business is all about Mm. and understanding that from the outside, it might seem like how could the advertising business generate jealousy at a level where somebody would kill somebody else. So a big part of the book was him getting his head around, oh, there's this thing called the ad business and it's super competitive and there's a lot of jealousy and people steal ideas and maybe that's what happened here. And then the sort of second half of the book was, what if somebody involved in the murder was a high concept thinker? And there's a lot of high concept thinkers in ad agencies. Mm. I get you. No, and what you're talking about from an investigative standpoint is he had a lot of uh, good common sense skills, probably a, above average social intelligence, powers of observation, but yet he had he lacked a specialized knowledge that he needed to understand what made the world in which he was in operate, why that universe was maybe different than other universes, like you know, two blocks away in a different part of town, something totally different. So that he had to, had to learn and understand how to apply his other innate skills towards the, the special circumstances of the ad agency world. Did I get that right? That's right. Yeah. And I thought that that would be interesting for a reader as well, because I was bringing them into a world that they may not know about. Yep. And also, I was going to comment that you wrote what you knew. There was a way to, to, to put your love of crime fiction together with the world that you were in every single day and be able to understand the, the nuances of the ad agency world, which, as you admit, many people don't understand and make it available for them to understand not only how the ad business works, but why, what the motives would be for the crimes committed there. And, and then that gives a way for the reader to understand the trials and tribulations that Mr. Tremaine was going through. So, yeah. And yeah. hopefully in the case of that book, they would find that in part amusing as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you were doing a little tongue in cheek, poking at the biz a little bit too. 
Yes. <laughs> Even though I love the biz and I'm still in it and I still okay. do it. Yeah. You know, one of the, the sort of points of that story is, you know, these people are in certain cases coming up with advertising for Tostitos and at the same time, the competition and jealousy could rise to the level of murder. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get it. And while you were talking about that, I want to bring up an obscure, not obscure. It's a book that sold lots and lots of copies back in the day. Joseph Wambaugh wrote a book called The Delta Star. And when he wrote The Delta Star, it was about a murder that took place where a, a candidate for the Nobel Peace Prize killed another candidate in order to get the person out of the competition. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah. The Nobel Peace Prize, for God's right, sake. exactly. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, definitely. And I, I was thinking about that while you were talking about that, that the jealousies within any organization, when there is competition and recognition, awards or money, that could be the difference between somebody, you know, having an extra zero in their paycheck that year or not. You know, the competition could be pretty fierce. I get it. So, and, you know, we've had a lot of uh, good shows with kind of uh, jealousies and, and competitions that go on in the movie business. So, you know, it's not far of a stretch to, uh, to apply that to advertising as well. True. But, so five years later and a little incubation period, you then came up with Darvell. First name? John. John. That's easy for me to remember. Easy for you to remember. Yes. <laughs> and uh, I did that on purpose. Yes, I, I'm sure you did. The Detective and the Pipe Girl. It gets nominated. Yes. And so tell me a little bit about John Darvell because another flawed detective, somebody that has some skills but also has some things that get in his way. Yeah. When I, when I wrote this book, I wanted to start a new character. I wanted to tell a good story. But I wanted the way I told the story to be interesting, hopefully, and different as well. And so I was thinking about the book in sort of two ways, sort of working out the plot, making that interesting, making that work, giving it twists and turns, but also really thinking about like the tone of a book mm. or the tone of a story and why that matters as well. And I think it's a really interesting thing to talk about from a storytelling perspective, whether you're writing a book or a movie or a show, because when a book feels a certain way, it can really make it special and make it fun. So with Darvell, it's a first person narrative. And broadly, the sort of main idea was, what if this detective told you the story almost like he was telling a story to a friend? And so it wouldn't just be, then I did this, then I did this, then I did this. It would be colored with his asides that are representative of his personality. And so if he tells a story about meeting somebody at a bar to talk to him and the bar doesn't serve the kind of beer he likes, he's going to tell the reader why he hates craft beer. Okay. And, and, and he's going to go into that in detail and that's going to be kind of a part of the storytelling style. Mm. And because it felt, it, it seemed to me that that's really how people tell each other stories. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of a, an idea. In, in addition to his just sort of character specs, it was going to be like the deeper you got into the plot, the deeper you got into this guy's head. I like that. In other words, as the uh, the layers of the onion of the narrative, the, of the plot narrative, 
uh, unveil. It also unveils more about the, the internal psyche of your flawed fictional detective, and we get to know him better. And as such, we also get to root for him more because we see more at what's at stake for him in the, in the outcome. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you, or he may even drive you a little bit crazy because the, the things that he's sharing aren't necessarily like a linear, logical thing. It's more of a reflection of somehow just how the human mind works. Like sometimes if he's, if there's a sort of a divorce element in the story, he might tell you a little bit about his divorce, but he also might tell you a thought that he's having while on a stakeout that's not connected to the story at all. Mm-hmm. No, I, I interview people all the time for my job as a private investigator and they're out in left field somewhere. And right. I'm saying, okay, you know, they're going to bring it home. They're going to bring it home. I'm just thinking to myself, they're going to bring it home. Now, a lot of times they don't, it's just a, something that they're off in a different world. And then I have to rope them back in, but I've got to tell you more times than not, the way their thought processes work, they bring it on home in a way that I could have never imagined. And if I tried doing question and answer, question and answer with them, I never would have gotten them to the point where they, their memory would have retrieved the information necessary for me to you know, understand what they really learned or what they really understood. So to listen to this, I could see where maybe a reader might seeing it as, as annoying if, they're, if they want to read the hard-boiled detective. But on the other hand, they might say, okay, where's this going to take me? Where's this uh, little side trip going to take me? How does that come back to the central story? And I bet you that they're, they were pleasantly surprised in the way it all tied together. And is that what you were trying to uh, do with the little si- uh, quirky sides of uh, Mr. Uh, Darbell? Yeah, I was trying to present him as a, a real person that might be amusing to you or not at times. Mm-hmm. But I think to your point, you got to be careful because you don't want to go too far. You don't want to go too long. You got to keep the sort of essential thread of the story going and you got to you know, keep people interested in the, in the sort of spine of the book. But I, I really did think that that was an interesting thing, to, whether it was philosophical or silly or random, to share the inner workings of his mind as he got deeper into this case. So during the five-year hiatus and then during the time that you wrote it, was there anything that you think were influential to you in terms of helping your writing to go to the next level in terms of maybe things that you were studying, reading, watching, doing, things that work, anything like that that helped you craft a better story around Mr. John Darbell? I would say yes. I'd say lots and lots of reading of books in and outside of the genre. Okay. And really the discipline of writing every day and trying to get better and realizing what I thought better meant. Mm -hmm. And I think a big one, you know, you were saying earlier, like, you know, write, write what you know. And that's a thing that you hear a lot. And I think it's true. But what I would add to that is make your writing personal. I think that's perhaps a more accurate way of saying write what you know, because you can write a story that takes place on Mars, but if you make it personal and you bring things to it that matter to you, it feels better and it makes for a better book. Mm. And that's one of the things I did with Pipe Girl as well. That's one of the things I thought about a lot in that, during that period. No, I get what you're saying. And that, like you said earlier, it was as if, your protagonist was having a conversation with a friend. 
Right. And that's the tone. And I like that a lot because that's storytelling from the uh, protagonist uh, point of view. It's not always accurate, but it's the way they, they view the world. It serves two purposes. It moves the plot forward, but it also gets you into the protagonist's head. And I see that. The other thing, too, is I, I can't help but think that being out there in L.A. And you were out in L.A. at the time? I lived in LA for 13 years. And then, and then when I, when I got the job at the ad agency that I was speaking about before, that agency was in Boulder, Colorado. So I I wrote Detective in the Pipe Girl while living in Boulder, but thinking about LA and going, and also going back all the time for work. Okay. And do you think that there was a little bit of a screenwriter in you also telling your or showing your story as opposed to telling it there was something in there that allowed you to look at it through the cinematic lens of uh, storytelling i think that looking at book writing through a cinematic lens absolutely that's something that i really believe in i'm a huge movie buff mm-hmm. particularly filmmakers who have a cinematic style and i thought that it was very important with Detective and the Pipe Girl for it to feel very cinematic, for it to, for you to be able to see it as you went along in the story. But I don't know if like show versus telling is quite true. Okay, I think you can kind of tell your story however you want. You don't necessarily have to show an example of somebody's personality. I think you can tell the reader what the person has somebody's personality is like as well, as long as you do it well. Mm-hmm. But the cinematic quality, writing in a way that gets there, I think is definitely what I was trying to do and definitely what I like when I read books. Yeah, I'm of the same ilk as you. When I, I visualize what's going on in the book and when I'm writing, I visualize how the scene plays out. It's almost if it's through the, ca- uh, the camera lens that I'm recording the information. Did you write the uh, Darvell? And I haven't had a chance to review it yet. I'm sorry. But uh, did you write them third person close or first person present? Or how did you write them? First person. Oh, yeah. wow. First, person, first person past tense. Oh, boy. That's a little different. Yeah. Is that what you mean? Like, yes. Like, right. Yeah. Like, it's, it's written in the, in the past. I mean, in, you know, like, I went here and yeah. I ate dinner there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I put it in the past tense, first person. That's my personal preference. I like reading books that are not in the present tense. Okay. I've stabbed six books into third person close. And whoever is the main person in the scene, I'm allowed in their head. Um, yes. That scene, third person close. But then, I'm now writing a cozy series where it's first person present. So I understand first person past exactly the way you said it. Instead of I say, or I, right. I, I tell yeah. it's I said, or I told. And yeah. It's funny that that whole sort of point of view thing, and you can lose your mind thinking about that. It's a really interesting thing to think about whether you want to write it in first person, whether you want to write it in third person, or like you say, third person close, mm. which is essentially first person, but written in the third person. Yes. It, which is, that, that's how I did body copy. It's yeah, that's a really interesting thing. And then the other way you can do it is where you're sort of omniscient and like you can just mm. get inside everyone's head and that gets pretty confusing as a writer. I only know one crime fiction writer that does that very well. And I'll leave that name out at the present time. But yeah. uh, it took me about 150 pages <laughs> to finally right. to finally realize what the rules of that game were. Yeah, which, like, how do you do this? Yeah, exactly. So you wrote Pipe Girls. 
and just briefly tell me what the uh, the story is. I don't and no spoilers. Just tell me a little bit about the story and how Mr. Uh, Darbell gets involved with it and what he has to figure out. The story is a big famous movie director on the level of Scorsese or Spielberg or Kubrick hires Darvell to find a woman who was his mistress. And when he looks into this story, when he goes after trying to find this young woman, he uncovers a high concept prostitution ring. Oh boy. Yeah. A prostitution ring with the twist. Okay. That's the, the basic one liner. Yes. Um, I like good ad copy. You just did it. <laughs> that was a good blurb. Yeah. I, I just did uh, a little blurb for uh, one of my books the other day and it dealt with sex trafficking. And I came up with uh, Jeffrey Epstein meets the Koch brothers. So yeah. Just nice. Like, yeah. 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 Just, it, it says, well, it's like I was saying at the beginning of the call, when, when you're, when you're looking for an agent or where you're writing query letters, it's, it's a very good exercise to try to articulate what your books are about quickly. Yeah. Cause it's not that easy, yeah. you know, cause you want to say everything and you want to say, Oh, and then there's this, and then there's that, and then there's this element, but you have to find a way to sort of go, here's what it's about. That's interesting. Right. The other thing you were asking me a little while ago about, like what I was thinking about during those five years, another thing I wanted to try to bring to the books is plots that felt just right on the edge of sort of larger than life, just a little bit bigger or weirder or more intriguing than, you know, detective looks into murder and everybody Mm -hmm. thinks it's the wife, but it turns out it's the brother or whatever. Mm -hmm. And that's where things like the pipe girls came about, you know, like what if there was this unusual way to run a prostitution ring? And my next book, the sequel to pipe girl, uh, the detective in the Chinese hyphen, I sort of tried to do the same thing and thought, what if I took a guy into the world of high dollar tropical fish sales? Because I think that part of what makes crime fiction cool, part of what makes it interesting is when you're in those worlds that are right on the edge of like, is this even real? You know, a lot, yeah. a lot of people asked me after Pipe Girl, they, they said, is that a real thing, the, the Pipe Girls in LA? Which I took as a compliment because I made it up. Mm-hmm. You could just say there's something similar <laughs> and then chuckle. Yeah, well, and chuckle. Maybe one day when you read it, you'll find out what a Pipe Girl is. But uh, yeah. it was funny. I was visiting my mom who lives in Florida and we were taking a walk in her neighborhood. And one of her friends, who's an older man, said, you know, are the, are the pipe girls real? Like, does that, does that way, does it, does a way to run a prostitution ring like that really exist? And I said, no, 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 I, I just made it up. And he looked at me and said, it should exist. It should. <laughs> yeah. You know, and some uh, Chinese uh, triad or Russian gang is going to say, Hey, we're going to borrow the Michael Craven method. So yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, so, uh, you wrote pipe girls, uh, and you found an agent for it and got it published. Yes. Like I was saying, I did it the hard way. I, okay. I wrote a bunch of query letters. I cringing, I called up uh, literary agents and introduced myself, you know, the cold calls. And I did that whole thing. Yes. Uh, eventually got an agent, eventually sold it and sold the next one to Harper Collins as well. Oh, congratulations. Now, the reason I asked is because so many authors that I interview say, 
I had this great idea for a book and uh, I wrote it and an agent, you know, I was able to secure an agent who was able to secure a publisher. And the first thing they asked me was, well, do I have a sequel? And of course I said, yes, but I had no clue that I had a sequel, you know, even in my mind. Now, did you know that there was going to be a two and possibly a three? I did not. Oh, okay. So you you fell into that first category of, yeah, yeah, I I can do that. I wrote the book. It came out. It was, it took a long time. I think it was, I don't know, a year later that it got nominated for the Seamus or something like that. So it was a a little bit of a long process. And then it kind of picked up sales like after like a year. And then I wrote the second one. Meanwhile, working at yet another ad agency. So it took a while for the second one to come out as well. Mm, Got it. No, I understand. And while you're speaking about that, some people in our business refer to the day job as the dreaded day job, but more and more professionals that I talk to are people that like what they do or happy with what they do. I've talked with surgeons. I've talked with doctors. I've talked with high, you know, high level lawyers. I've talked with police officers, police detectives who still are on the job. And I've talked to people that are in their professions and love what they do. So now the writing is not an escape from the day job, but it's actually following a passion, but you have to give time to it. And, and I think that's even more difficult than the person that, you know, can't wait for the clock to hit five o'clock so they can go do what they want to do. So how did you balance competing interests and your time and your energy, I guess, for lack of a better way of saying that? Yeah. I mean, that's my situation. Exactly. You know, I'm, I'm still in the advertising business and I'm not trying to get out of the advertising business and the whole time I've been writing books, I've been pursuing this this career that I that I like that I like a lot. Okay. To answer your question, it's very very tough because if you know anything about the ad business, it's just brutal. Oftentimes, seven days a week. And when you're a creative at an ad agency, a writer or a creative director, you're constantly given new assignments where you got to come up with something out of the blue. And so there's a ton of pressure writing pressure of like, I've got to think of something and I got to write it down. So it has slowed my books down quite a bit because it is hard to find that balance. And what I do now is I freelance in ad agencies. And when I'm writing a book, for the most part, I'm not even working in the business. I take time off and just write. I can see how it was not impossible to channel your energies, but damn difficult. And that now you've been able to now divide your energies to where when Michael's doing the ad copy work, that's what he's focused on. When Michael's writing the act one or doing the inciting incident for his book, that's what he's working on. And, but I could see where in the middle of the night, you'd be, you could be conflicted trying, you know, your brain wants to think about solving that naughty problem with the ad agency, but then also your brain's trying to work out why this character isn't really working in in this uh, scene and why it's not happening. And you've got conflicting things going on and your brain can't basically handle both, can't compartmentalize that. And you're a complete wreck and an exhausted shell of a man. Yes, John, exactly. (laughs) You're describing it exactly correctly. Uh, That is is true. I've been in that situation many times. No, I, I know that. But yes, well. that's true. It requires it requires a ton of work. But I think that that's a good thing to talk about with respect to writing books. I listened to a few episodes of your show, and I've obviously listened to 
a lot of writer interviews over the years. I've mm-hmm. read a lot of interviews over the years with writers. I think we sort of all do that. And one thing almost everyone says is it comes down to how, how much you put into it. It's a game of discipline. It's a game of really, really hard work, mm-hmm. which is surprising, I think, to people who start writing books for the first time because in a way, in your mind, you think, well, writing a book is about inspiration and you're walking along and you get inspired and then you go home and you sit next to a roaring fire with a quill pen and you, <laughs> you write thousands of pages and that's it. And it's like, it's totally the opposite of that. It's like you have to force yourself to get to your desk every day. And the more you do that, the better your writing becomes and the more ideas you have. Yeah. When you were saying that, I was thinking about the guy with the uh, patches on the... Yeah, on the elbows. On the elbows and the, yeah, and the, uh, absolutely. And the pipe clenched the firmly pipe. in, the, in right. the teeth as the as a typewriter clacks away yes. with the occasional ding. Yeah, I, I get that. I get that vision. I know that I'm structured in terms of how I want to go about my day. If I can get an uninterrupted three and a half to four hours in, and I mean uninterrupted. I turn everything right. else off and hopefully the world doesn't need me for those three and a half, four hours. And I can achieve a state of mind where I'm totally in my book, totally in my characters. I know where I was with the previous chapter, where I'm going with the next chapter and how this chapter has to help me go from point A to point C because this is point B. I get that. And if I can get into, I don't want to call it a flow state because then I feel like Michael Jordan with 20 seconds left on the clock. Right. No, it's not like that at all, but it's more of being undistracted and being totally involved in the task at hand. And if you can do that, then I think it's a, a superior product. But if, if you're I checking your is. email all the time and checking out right. cat videos, you know, <laughs> it ain't going to happen. So I'm sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, I was saying, I would say that it is kind of a flow state and that that's okay to say that because I think that if you can stay with it, if you can do it every day or five days a week or six days a week or whatever, you do sort of get into a state of mind, the repetition, the discipline, it kind of helps you Mm -hmm. get into that groove, Mm -hmm. but it's still really hard. You know, like, like speaking of writing ad like slogans for stuff, my slogan for this particular subject is discipline creates the inspiration, not the other way around. Oh, I like that. And there's some uh, Navy SEALs that would say the same thing, you know? It's an interesting thing to think about, and it's, it's fascinating to see it happening when you force yourself to do it every day, and suddenly, you know, your subconscious kind of starts to give you ideas, and you, you sort of sit down at your desk at the same time, and it starts to happen a little quicker each day and, and all that stuff. It's cool. Very hard, but yeah. cool. No, I'm reminded of a, um, a story involving, I think his name is Pablo Casals, a uh, cellist or some type of a string instrument auteur. And somebody asked him, Pablo, you're, you're 89, you're 90 years old, however old he was at the time. How come you practice about three or four, day, you know, three or four hours a day? And he said very quietly back to the interviewer, well, I'm just starting to notice I'm getting a little bit better. Right. Yeah. And yep. yeah, three to four hours a day, 89, 90 years old, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, I get that. And and when you think about putting in the time and the other words are Fanny in the chair, hands on the keyboard. Yeah. And you think about that and yes, good things can happen if that's what you're focused on. And that's the word I think that you were saying in a roundabout way is the focus that you're not going to let anything else get into that time period. And that's what you're going to do. That's what you're going to work on for sure. So 
we've talked about Darbell. We've talked about Mr. Uh, Tremaine. But I'm also going to ask you, who do you like to read that interests you? Who do you read that floats your boat these days? Because I know you said you read some in the genre in those five intervening years. But who do you like to read these days? Well, you know, I'll go back a little bit. The first books I ever read for pleasure, really. I mean, I did what we all did and read the books required in high school and all that. But first writer that I ever read where I went, I just want to read this book and not do anything else was Kurt Vonnegut. Okay. So I read Kurt Vonnegut, a bunch of Kurt Vonnegut's books and Robert Persig, the guy that wrote uh, Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance and the the sequel uh, Lila, which is also great. Okay. First crime novel I ever read was by Elmore Leonard. So I started with the all-time master. My dad sent me a couple Elmer Leonard paperbacks in college, which I put on my shelf and didn't read for like two years, and then picked one up and was blown away. Mm. That led me to the PI guys. Ross McDonald mm-hmm. was one of my all-time faves. Robert Parker, mm-hmm. John D. McDonald. I grew up in Florida. Mm-hmm. And then once I discovered the world of you know PI fiction, crime fiction, I just went on a tear and read everything I could get my hands on. These days, I read more kind of books by an author than I, than I do, you know, running through the whole library. Okay. And so Gillian Flynn, sure. uh, I think she's great. I think she's funny. I think she's really interesting. Don Winslow, read a couple of his books recently. Oh, he's in my Twitter feed. Uh, that's great, yeah. I discovered Steve Hamilton's PI novels and then read a couple of his books that weren't PI novels, liked them a lot. I've always got a crime fiction book going. I've always mm-hmm. got a PI book going. And then I read all sorts of other stuff as well, you know? Okay. No, I get it. And I'm the same way. My reading has accelerated more during my writing days than it went out before when I was more active in the, in the field, you know, working 55 to 60 hours a week. Yeah. You know, and the other thing, too, is a little bit about that was back in the day, if you had your favorite writers, like I ticked off four for you, they were on a traditional publishing schedule. So they weren't coming out with a book every two months or every three months. Right. So I read read maybe five authors, but they would have a book come out a year. And that meant I had five books that year. You know, and if I wanted to read maybe a Grisham or a Clancy in, in the middle, I would do that, too. But, you know, I was always waiting for my next book coming out from my favorite five. And I guess that kept alive. But now with uh, the advent of Kindle and with book deals left and right, yeah. oh, my God, I can, I can pick up an, a nine-book series on a flawed fictional detective for 99 cents. Well, it's not, <laughs> it's not the money. It's the right. time, right? But I'm saying to myself. And the ease. And the ease. And the ease, and the, and the ease of just buying it by going, I'll buy that. I'll yeah. read that. Yeah, I'll click on that. Yeah. And that's it. So anyway, no, but I, is there anything that I failed to ask you today that you thought that maybe I should, maybe I have asked other authors, but you thought I should ask you, did I forget anything? I don't think so. Okay. No, the reason I, I always ask that question, because sometimes, you know, in preparation for an interview, writers will think, well, if John asks me this, then I'll say that. Yeah. And I'd hate to miss out on that wonderfully crafted answer. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I didn't, I didn't pre-plan the answers. I think we talked about some good things as it relates to writing, you know? No, definitely. Particularly how hard it is and how much work you have to put into it. Especially when you love what you do in your day job. That's the yeah, thing, yeah. Because I can, I can just see people that hate their day job. Every spare moment they can, they're thinking about what they want to do. Is the minute they punch off the right, clock. Right. And for us who are 
our brains continue to roll on the stuff that we love to do. And that could be an interference to our writing. We have to turn that off so that we can get our juices flowing for the writing at hand. So definitely. Are you still a PI? Yes. Uh, 46 years of some type of investigation in my career. I started out as a police officer in 1976 and I've um, been a licensed private investigator for 25 years now. Wow. Cool. Not as active as I was in the past. I mean, up until a few years ago, I had a full caseload and I've tapered that back down. Right now, the only thing that I'm really working on is uh, wrongful conviction exoneration cases. They are the kind of cases where people are forgotten, languishing yeah. in jail, yeah. and the criminal justice system has basically pushed them into a corner. And their lawyer and me are about the only people standing between them and the rest of their life in prison uh, for crimes they didn't commit. I mean, I'm only working pretty much with innocent people at this point that are wrongfully convicted and I'm trying to get them exonerated. So, wow, yeah, cool. so that, that keeps me going. But, you know, when I sit down with a 500-page discovery from a police department, yeah, it kind of slows down my writing yeah, I would for the imagine. next couple of days. Yeah, <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah, it does. Like, oh, all that cursive handwriting and, right. and third-generation and, and photographs. 500 pages of it. Yeah, exactly. What's your favorite PI main character movie? They're actually BBC. Huh? Okay. And you can get them as a box set. They are the Cormoran Strike. Oh, uh, yeah. The, the, the J.K. Rowling. Isn't that a... Yeah, Robert Gale, Gale, Gale. Yeah, the, her pen name for that. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I've never seen him. I'll check it out. Oh, let me tell you. Robert Galbraith is my f- most favorite writer. Really? Now, yes. Interesting. Yes. That's high praise. I never read one. I remember the first one that came out, The Cuckoo's Calling, right? Yeah. Well, go get it and read it. All right. And then you're going to find the development of the characters too, Cormoran Strike and Robin Ellicott, yeah. who was his temporary secretary, you know, using the word correctly, temporary attempt. And then through the course of five books becomes a full-fledged partner. And she's got another one coming out this uh, August, August, 2022, the reason I say that, and you ask me, and I'll tell you, well, it's also my podcast, so I can, <laughs> I can, yeah, I can yeah. take a moment with this, is that how I feel about this new author is that I have a 2B red pile, a TBR pile, and I have active books on my, on my nightstand that I read. When I'm able to get a hardback, and I only read Galbraith and hardback, and that's the other thing. I'll read people on Kindle. I'll read people on softcover, but I reserve my right to yeah. read this in hardback. I do that for a couple of people too. Right. And when that book becomes available to me, boom, everything else stops. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I have to then schedule time for my writing because now my reading becomes more important yeah. than my writing. Yeah. And the Galbraith novels are, they're doorstops. If you know what I mean? Thickness wise, yeah. we're talking yeah. four, three or four inches. And the last one, Troubled Blood, was 969 pages. So for a P.I. Wow. novel. For a yeah, PI that's novel, long. That's long. Yeah. So anyway, that's who my fave is these days. And But I, I mentioned off air before we got started that I read Lawrence Block's Matt Scudder, Martin Cruz Smith's Arcady Renko, Michael Connolly's Harry Bosch, yeah. uh, Laura Littman's Tess Monahan. And uh, those are my f- my fave four, and I've just moved Galbraith into that 
pantheon of fictional detectives. Very you. cool. I will try one. I've never, I've read most of those other people, but I have not read a, is it Cormoran? Yeah, Cormoran Strike. Cormoran Strike. I haven't read one yet. Cool. And you know what? His, his sidekick, Robin Ellicott, is just as important in the story. So yeah, he's the main protagonist, but they become co-protagonists as the story uh, develops and goes on. And there's, I don't, I don't know if they spell, spend equal time with their own chapters, but one doesn't work well without the other. It's not like a, a Holmes and Watson type of relationship either. They both are very separate, different people. But anyway, you asked. So I, uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not afraid yeah. to wax poetic on who my no, favorite is. I mean, I'm always looking for a new good one. Yeah. And someday I may have Robert Galbraith on the, uh, the podcast. I mean, that would be, that'd be my unicorn, right? That'd be a big one. Yes. <laughs> and you know what? The way I'd play it is that I would make no reference whatsoever to the other books. <laughs> right. Right. I'd be only focused about the relationship between these two flawed detectives. Right. You know, yeah, that's how I would work it. So anyway. Michael, oh, what's the next book coming out after the Chinese High Fin? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm almost finished with it. Okay. And, uh, you know, so hopefully a year or so after I finish it. Okay. So uh, you'll let me know when that comes out so that we can uh, yes. tell our fans on the uh, podcast about your third one in the John Darvell novel series. Yes, yep. sir. All right. Okay, sir. Well, I thank you very much for coming on today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Thank you for listening. I hope I've earned your interest and your time. Our guest next week is Elaine Isaac. She began writing stories at an early age. She attended the Rhode Island School of Design, and while studying abroad in Italy, she acknowledged her inner drive and withdrew from school to work on her first novel. Elaine writes in several different genres, traditional fantasy, historical fantasy, but it is her thrillers in the Bone Guard series that first got my attention. She writes those under the pen name of E. Chris Ambrose. They are The Mongol's Coffin, The Nazi Skull, The Assassin's Throne, and The Maya Bust. We had a great conversation, and I think you're going to look forward to it. This episode was brought to you by my own FBI agent, Marsha O'Shea, six-book series, and my upcoming Gwendolyn Strong Small Town Cozy Mystery Series. To learn more, go to www.johnhoda.com. That's J-O-H-N-H-O-D-A.com. And join my email list. Liberty City Nights, my Marsha O'Shea prequel novella, is available to my subscribers there for free.